or attitude or demeanor in the process. You get what I'm saying? It's not just being right. It's being as right as we can be in the Lord. And this is really where we find the people of God in this book of Haggai. They're in the right place. And I'll set that up for you in just a moment. But they are not doing the right thing. Eighty-six years or so before Haggai comes on the scene, God had sovereignly orchestrated his people's captivity. Captivity? Yes. They willfully went against his law, which said, if you embrace the ways of the Canaanites, if you cast aside my law, I will bring another nation on you. I will remove you from this land and put you in a land that you have never known. And this is what God did. He kept his promise. And But then, after 70 years of captivity, God did a work in the heart of a pagan Gentile emperor named Cyrus, and he decreed that Israel could leave their land of captivity and go back to their homeland to rebuild a temple and reestablish worship in their land. And so Zerubbabel let this is, uh, I challenge you to say Zerubbabel three times fast. That's a real tongue twister. Zerubbabel led this return. He was the first one, and he led about 50,000 people. Now, I found it, found it challenging to lead three children, but how about 50,000? And they returned to their homeland, and so the people returned to the land that God gave them. It was a miracle. It was a wonderful act of God. And they came to accomplish His will. They came to dwell in the land. They came to worship the one and only Almighty Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word for God, thereby rebuilding the temple as the first priority of being in the land. But something happened. Something happened that caused them to turn their attention away from God's calling and substitute everyday pursuits for the calling of God. In antiquity, conquering kings would, uh, of course, a lot of people would die when a nation was being conquered, and that happened in Judah as well in 586 B.C. But they also, when they removed people from their homelands, they took other conquered peoples and relocated them. And so over these 86 years, these relocated Gentile people live in the land of Judah, and some of them over time, as you know, some become leaders, some become very influential people, and these people began to discourage the people of God. We read about this in Ezra chapter 4. We read about their discouragement. There was all manner of societal opposition as they accused the Jews of rebuilding this temple in order to incite a rebellion against the emperor and the it was all manner of slander as well as they accused them of not paying taxes and uh, their intentions uh, were uh, unwholesome and they, uh, they diminished their character, the character of God's people. Eventually, 
the emperor wrote back and he actually stopped them. On a legal decree, he stopped them from building. Do you get the scene so far? God commanded them to go. He orchestrated returning to the land. And he says, build the temple. And then all this opposition happens and they stop. And so for 16 years, the people had allowed the temple to remain unfinished, a testament to an enemy victory. Now, in the wake of an emperor's edict, it's really easy for us to see how Israel would occupy themselves with daily responsibilities. I mean, didn't the, didn't the emperor of the world decree that you had to stop? Well, you can't stop eating and you can't stop pursuing the things that make for livelihood, and so that is what they did. But the problem is that they misplaced their priorities. You see, while the emperor said something, the king of kings had never changed what he decreed. And brothers and sisters, that's an issue that's going to face you and me in the not-too-distant future. That our government may say things, this is not the point of the sermon, this is just free, it's not even in the notes. But our government may say things to us, and you're going to have to make a choice whether you're going to follow a human government or the king of kings. Are you with me on that? These people misplaced their priorities, and they prioritized daily life over obedience to God's call, allowing the emperor's edict to supersede God's commands, and altogether losing sight of what God had commanded. And it is to that situation that God sent this old man, Haggai, who was probably elderly by the time he started preaching, to give God's people a divine kick in the derriere. They needed that. Sometimes we do too, don't we? God's Word kind of does that to us. So let's give our hearts attention to this wonderful book and see what God is saying both to Israel and to us. The first thing you want to see, and if you're taking notes, that's your first blank, God's confrontation. Notice God's question. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Well, something very real had happened. The emperor decreed that building should stop. Verse 2 tells us that the people drew a conclusion. Look what it says. God says to them, this people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Do you hear that? The people had drawn a conclusion here. They, they had drawn the conclusion that because of oppression and slanderous comments from neighbors and legal action, that meant that they were actually doing the wrong thing. Some of us think that way. When life gets hard, we tend to think that God must not be in this. Well, you know what? It could be exactly the opposite. It could be that God has called you to do something that's hard. And, and hardness doesn't mean that God isn't in it. Hardness means you need the Lord in the hardness. Can I get an amen to that? Y'all still there? Are you alive? Take a deep breath so I can hear you. The problem is that they did not appreciate the larger picture of what God was doing. They were only looking at the present circumstances. What had God done? 
He had taken them from captivity, from the bondage, 900 miles away and decreed that they should come back. And he brought them back and he established them in the land. And if they had stopped and said, wait a second, God is sovereignly moving in our lives. This isn't, my conclusion can't be right here. That's not what they did. And so God tells them, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Through the prophet's message, God pulls back the curtain, if you will. You know, they had experienced some things. They had experienced a hardship. They had experienced drought. They would experienced natural phenomenon. And God says, hey, I did that. I did that. Because you are not doing my will. God pulls back the curtain and he shows them. That, he, that their frustrated work in verse 6, he says, you've sown much, you've harvested little, you eat, but you never have enough, you drink, but you never have your fill, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put it into a bag with holes. Do you get the picture? <laughs> God says, I'm frustrating your work. You never seem to have enough. I'm frustrating the results because you can't get ahead. You ever felt that way? God says again in verse 7, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Listen, beloved, when life gets hard, we can, we can sometimes, our, 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 our minds can tell us the wrong thing. We can say, God's angry with me. God's upset with me. Uh, I, I must have done the wrong thing. The, the, the opposite may be true. God loves you. He is putting pressure on you to get you to turn back to what he has already said to you. And so he says in verse 8, go up to, I've just, you know, Haggai's message is so plain, so simple, and so short. This book has four messages in it. It's only two chapters, 38 verses long. It contains four different messages, the longest of which only takes a minute and a half to read. I'm not sure what to make of that point, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. Verse 8, he tells them in this first message, go up to the hills, bring wood, Build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Those are the true priorities, beloved. The pleasure of God on our lives and, and the glory of God as it is reflected in what we do. And again, God pulls back that curtain in verse 9 and he says, You looked for much, but behold, it came to little. And why? God says, I blew it away. I caused you to be in hardship. And God says he frustrated their objectives, consuming their personal property. He blew it away. In verse 10, he says that he caused crop failure. I'm having clicker failure. Okay. Now, verse 10. The heavens above you withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce. Well, that's crop failure. Now, in an agrarian society, if you have crop failure, you're in big trouble. In verse 11, he says, I've called for a drought on the land. This isn't just natural happenstance. This is God disciplining his people, making life harder on them so that they would make the right 
choice. There was a period in our, our youngest child's upbringing where he was making some really foolish decisions. Still wanted to live at home. He was getting older. And uh, Vicky and I are like, um, this isn't going to last forever. We're going we're gonna to give him the boot at somehow. Uh, but here's what we did. We turned up the heat in his life. We made life a little harder for him. And it, what it did, it had, the, it had the desired effect. He began to make better, wiser choices. And he left home. <laughs> Haggai's message is uncomplicated. It is simple and it is clear. The people of God had forsaken God's calling and pursued their own welfare. Now, does God not want you to pursue your own welfare? Of course he does. The whole book of Ecclesiastes, easy for you to say, is about the benefit that you get from your hard work on earth. But God wants us to keep our priorities straight. This is a book about proper priorities. So now, family of God, since God's led us to this book to consider its message for these two Sundays, we should pause and consider our own ways. Don't you think so? That's what God calls us to do when we sit under his word. So let's do that together. Israel was building a physical temple. Yes or no? We need to build a temple. You think it's a trick? Thank you very much. It's not a trick question. <laughs> We're not building a temple. But let me tell you something. Maybe it actually is a trick question because God is. God is building a spiritual temple. The Spirit of God in this Time in earth's history is in the world convicting it of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And people must turn from their self-sufficiency, from their own condemnation to Christ, believing that he suffered in our place and satisfied God's wrath against us in order to give us forgiveness and eternal life. If that doesn't happen, then that person suffers for their own sins in eternity for all eternity in hellfire, and there's no reason why anybody should do that because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all sinners. Can I get an amen to that? So every time, I didn't hear one, but I'll trust that you meant it. Okay, um, every time a person believes in Jesus, he is added to the spiritual temple that God is building. So why am I asking, why am I using that illustration? Because the New Testament does. Notice what Peter says. You yourselves, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul says it even more plainly, for I delivered to you, what does that say? Of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Do you see what God is putting together here? The cross of Christ where he gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for all humanity's sins. It stands on the timeline of history as the great divine focal point for all of humanity. This is God's priority. This is God's priority for us. And the message of this book 
is that our priorities ought to mirror God's. If we are not engaging in personal evangelism and supporting the work of personal evangelism through the gathered church, then God is speaking to us in this day and age simply and clearly that we should consider our ways. And because Israel forsook God's agenda, God frustrated their personal agendas for prosperity. Notice again the text. Look at the highlighted portions here. Notice the outcomes of their labors and God's sovereign frustration of their plans. The lesson here is stark and it is eye-opening. God frustrated their personal pursuits in a judgment in order to get their attention and bring them back to their proper priorities. So what did they do? This is where I paused in the reading and I said it's such a refreshing thing to read. They actually obeyed. Haggai stands alone in the prophetic books in that it highlights people's obedience. Most of the prophets are talking about their disobedience, which is the reason God sent prophets to them. But here they heard the message and they said, we're wrong, you're right, I want to repent. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, with how many of them? All the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. What a refreshing thing to read. Beloved ones, walking in obedience does not require that you understand from start to finish all of what God is going to do if you obey Him. It is like a small child hearing the voice of his father. When father says do something, that is the thing we do. When father says go in this direction, that is the direction we go in. We do not look for alternatives. We are simply walking in obedience and trusting Him for what happens next. Israel was building a physical temple. But the New Testament teaches us that we are the temple of the living God. And our Lord Jesus has commanded us as members of this temple, as living stones, to take his message to the lost around us. And listen to this, so that the temple of his people can continue to be built. Are you with me? Person by person, soul by by soul, redeemed because they have heard and understood the message of the good news, that's what gospel means, good news, that they need a Savior and God has provided one. To reword Haggai's question, is it time for you and me to dwell in our comfortable houses while God's true temple of redeemed souls is yet incomplete? Beloved, Remember, the text is calling us to consider our way, so let's do that together. Are we proclaiming Christ to the people around us? Can I just give you some objections that I've heard? Well, I don't really have time. I have too much work to do. Well, if that's your objection, then you're just like the people of Haggai, (laughs) and you need this message (laughs) 
You need to rearrange your priorities because they're out of order and they're displeasing to the Lord. And let me also encourage your heart by telling you that Jesus himself said, if you will seek first my kingdom, what's the rest of the verse? All these things will be added to you. Can you believe God? When has he lied to you? When has he misled you? When has he tricked you? I think we can trust him. Some of you may object, I'm just a shy person. Okay, well, that's not really a valid objection. That's just telling me what kind of personality you have. What if you're not good at starting conversations? There might be some validity to that. I don't. You know, it's really easy to talk about sports and the weather, isn't it? But what happens when you start to initiate a spiritually oriented conversation? Right Hands, does it get easy or hard? Easy, hard. It's hard, isn't it? And you know why? Because you have someone against you. There is spiritual conflict to that. And every single obedient Christian experiences this. It is something that uh, is real, even though you can't see it. And honestly, I find it just as hard as you do. But I don't want to walk in disobedience. And I've just, I don't know if this will work for you, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Use it if you want. If you don't, throw it away. I just dive in. I just have resorted to raw honesty. And I tell people, I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I have a very deep concern that people I meet have a relationship with God through Jesus. May I ask you if you have one? The word relationship generally gets their attention. Do I get shut down sometimes? Yes, I do. But there are other times when they actually listen. And they want to hear more about this relationship with God. And some will even express appreciation for me bringing up such, a important, such an important matter to them. Some people might say, well, I don't really know enough to know what to say. Well, how do you know you don't know what to say if you don't initiate the conversation? I find that flawed logic. And by the way, God is not bypassing your need to learn how to converse with people and learn how to engage the gospel. He, he, he gives us that command, but he knows that you are a being who learns. And so you learn by actually doing it, experiencing a little frustration, going back and thinking about it, and doing it better the next time. What God does promise us is that he will be with us. And he will give us utterance. The Lord Jesus said this. He will give us utterance in that day. And he will bring to our remembrance all the things that he's taught us. And by the way, that presupposes that you're in the word, coming to understand on your own what God is saying to you. So the true issue is not your objection. The true issue is not how hard it is. The true issue is where's your heart's focus? Where's your heart's focus? Are you a person whose heart is focused on obedience to Christ, what are your life's true priorities? Remember, God frustrated their financial prosperity in order to get their attention. And God is calling us as well to consider our ways. He says it twice. Anytime the Holy Spirit says something, he means it. But if he repeats it, you really ought to pay attention. 
God is calling us to consider our ways. He's committed the task of world evangelization to the church. And this is the reason we exist. This is the reason we uh, encourage one another in our obedience, in our walks with God. And this is the reason we receive tithes so that we can exist as a cultural entity engaging the purposes of God. Now, can I be brutally honest with you? I mean, you can't stop me, really. Um, Our financial condition here at Poplar is not good. Um, The numbers are good in today's bulletin, but uh, as I've looked at it over and over again, I've seen that we receive slightly more than 25% each week of what we need to operate. And I promise you that Jeff and I uh, and uh, the other elders have cut back everything we know to cut down to a raw budget. And uh, let me also throw this in that Brother Jeff and Brother Douglas are not being paid what we actually should be paying them. But they don't do it for pay. They do it for the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't want to put you on a false guilt trip. But I do want to be faithful to God's Word as he has given it to us here in its implications and as we apply it in real life. So I'm going to ask you, are you tithing? Do you give a tenth of your income to the Lord's work? Well, Dave, a tithe, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it is. That's where we first learn about it. But tell me this, folks. Tell me this, people of God. Where in the New Testament did God say that's no longer relevant? Where did he say, oh, I'm going to change that? If anything, the New Testament has elevated the tithe to its 10% plus a heart full of joy and gratitude at what God has done for us in Christ. So let me be as simple and straightforward as, as our prophet is. How is your heart? Are you full of thankfulness, gratitude for what Christ has done? And does that cause you to be gratefully generous with what God has entrusted to you? Or are you still holding tightly to what God has given you? You know, um, there's spiritual principles involved. When you've been to the beach and you've grabbed a handful of sand, what happens the tighter you grab that sand? The more, the t- more tightly you hold it, the more it slips through your fingers. In or, but, and that's kind of the way it is when we're selfish with what God has entrusted with us. God says you've worked and you put your money in a bag with holes. <laughs> Does our logic prevail? A logic that says when I get ahead, I'll start tithing? Well, I can tell you with God's authority and the message of this book that you will never get ahead. If that's your attitude. God allows disobedient choices. You can choose that. But you must also remember in that choice comes a distance from God and a leanness of soul. God is not calling us to be perfect, beloved. He is calling us to obedience. Israel obeyed. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and they feared the Lord. Obedience and fear go together. One of the greatest needs in the church 
is a restoration of the fear of God. Fear is not merely reverencing Him. It is that, but it's far more. Fear is exactly the way it sounds. It is being afraid of God. If you don't know Christ, you should be afraid of His wrath because His wrath is on you. And Christ is your only hope. Otherwise, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. As God's people, we ought to be afraid of blatant sin, of claiming to know Christ and yet indulging our flesh in deliberate, sinful ways. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. We should be afraid of wandering hearts. I don't know about you, but uh, somebody asked me once, actually, I was coming here to be your interim in, 19, in, in 2016, and Pastor David King asked me, said, what do you fear the most about going to be their pastor? I said, David, I fear myself more than anything, because I know what can be in me. Do you know what I'm saying? We should be afraid of those wandering hearts that would grieve the heart of our Heavenly Father and invoke His discipline because whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. We ought to be afraid of willful disobedience. Just remember the magnanimous kindness of God that gave us His Son and rescued us from our hell-bound destruction. Beloved, if that reality, if these realities have grown dull in your hearts, you need what the people of Israel needed. You need to see God for who He is, the Lord of hosts. Five times in this message that takes only one minute to read, God uses this title for Himself. Five times. It's a title that communicates that God is He of whom there is none greater, standing in authority over His people, absolutely unrivaled, having commanded us to walk in His ways, and we need to fear His presence. We need to fear disobeying Him. We need to actually do what He has commanded us. Hearing God's Word from the, from the, from the prophet Haggai, intersects with our lives. As it comes to our ears, it intersects with our hearts. And will there be movement toward God or a clash between wills, your will and God's will? This is your moment. This is your moment to turn from misplaced priorities, whatever they are, whatever you've allowed to overshadow your allegiance to God and your dedication to doing His will, and return to the God who loves you and has placed a call on your life. Whose dwelling are you building, beloved? Your own? Or are you contributing to the temple of the living God, made up of some souls who have already believed and some who are around you who have not yet believed but will, if they hear the message? Whose priorities are you following? God's? or yours. May I remind you again, this is God's priority. This is first importance, that Christ died for the sins of the world. And Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It, this message, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This ought to eradicate all of our objections, because we don't have to have, be well-spoken 
We don't have to have all the arguments in place. The message itself is the power of God that brings life. This is God's priority. This is God's priority. There's one more thing I want you to see before we close. And that is God's encouragement. God says, I am with you. (laughs) This is so beautiful. Who was with them? The Lord. The Lord of hosts. The one of whom there is none greater. God does not answer to the emperor. God is God. Listen, you need to know this. You'll hear more about this next week. Haggai is only 38 verses, but 35 times God's name is invoked in this book, either in a direct uh, proper pronoun or in a pronoun. That is 92% of the book's content is drawing our attention to God himself, his exalted position over us, his presence among us. We as the people of God need to order our lives under the sovereign, all-powerful, majestic, glorious presence of the living God. Israel did. (laughs) They did. Your largest section in your notes is their obedience. (laughs) Israel heard the word of the Lord and obeyed, and that is what we should do as well. So may I ask you in closing, do you have a heart to obey? You have a heart that says, I hear what you're saying, Lord, and I want to walk in your ways right now, from now on, and always. God isn't going to make a deal with you, and there is no negotiation. He is calling us to absolute obedience, like writing him a check. All of me, all the time, all I have, anywhere he sends, any person he brings into my life. Amen? That is the message of chapter 1. Would you bow your heads with me? Beloved, let's consider our ways before God. Before this holy, exalted God that is unrivaled in power, majesty, and authority. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Make certain that you're in the faith. Make certain that you have ears to hear. Make certain that you have cried out to the Savior to save you from sin's condemnation. Is there anyone here today who has realized perhaps for the first time that you truly don't have a relationship with Jesus and you want one. No one's looking around. Keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. I want you to commit yourself to Christ right now if that's what you've realized. Cry out to him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins. Repent of your self-centered lifestyle. And come to him for his mercy.
if you need me to help you with that after the service, I'll be down front. Or even the person that you may have come with today can help you. Beloved, if you're in the faith, you're right, but you might need to be more right. You need to stop allowing worldly cares to overpower the voice of Christ in your daily life. You need this morning to turn from your misplaced priorities and come afresh to the presence of Jesus, risen from the dead, alive inside every person who's born again, wanting a close, vital fellowship with every person who's in him. Would you make it your business to come closer to Christ this morning? Lord, I thank you for my friends, my family, and you. I thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would take it, strengthen us, sharpen us for your glory, so that we would give absolute surrender to who you are. We pray this in your name, living Lord Jesus.